Lord, I thank you for this day, and I, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to share your word, and I ask that you be with us and use me as a vessel to, to share your word, and that you give everybody the heart to have discernment and understanding of, of your word, and that we just dedicate ourselves to following it every day. In Jesus' name, amen. So who knows what today is? Today is the day of Pentecost, for those who didn't know. So today we are actually going to be studying on uh, Acts 2, which goes over Pentecost and kind of the whole events of that day. So that's kind of where we're going to start. So we're going to be starting in Acts 2. So most of the chapter takes place on the day of Pentecost. And I've chosen this topic today because today is Pentecost. Uh, The word Pentecoste is a Greek word for Pentecost, and the word actually means 50th. So it's the ordinal number for the, the number 50. And so that's why we call it Pentecost. And the day in the Old Testament is actually known as the Feast of Weeks. And so the, it's called the Feast of Weeks for a particular reason. So the day of Pentecost takes place 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover. So if we look at weeks and we count seven weeks of seven each, would be 49 days takes us to the Sabbath, seven weeks after Pentecost. And then you add the last day, being the 50th, that would be the Sunday, 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover. So it's kind of the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. And so that brings us today. It's the first day of the week, and 50 days after uh, the Last Supper with Jesus, and in the Old Testament, the Feast of Weeks is described in Leviticus twenty-three, fifteen, and 16, where it says, For the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of wheat, or sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. And so it's also known as the Feast of Harvest in Exodus uh, twenty-three, sixteen. And there it reads, celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in fields. And so the purpose of the Old Testament feast of harvests or of weeks was to show the joy and thankfulness and just the appreciation of God's blessing on the harvest that was coming through. That God had blessed their harvest and so you wanted to give an offering of those first fruits that came when you got your harvest in. And that was what they would do on the day of Pentecost. For us, the day of Pentecost, but for them... Uh, Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. So we'll go ahead and look at uh, Acts 2 now, uh, looking at the first three verses. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So here it starts out by saying that they were all gathered together in one place. So we want to, first thing we want to do is figure out who is it they're talking about that's gathered together. Who are the all that are gathered together there? Because there's a lot of people in the story as you go through here, the crowds and everything. But here it's specifically talking about the 11 apostles that we know and then uh, Matthias who has recently been chosen to replace Judas as the 12th apostle. And so those are the ones that are gathered together uh, when we start the story here. And so next, the verse speaks of a violent wind coming from heaven. And a breath of wind is a symbol 
of the Spirit of God throughout the Bible. And you can see this in a couple of examples, um, starting with Ezekiel 37 in verses 9 and 14. In verse 9 it says, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Come, breathe for the four winds and breathe into these slain that, may, that they may live. And then in verse 14, it says, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, am the Lord, that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. So in the verse, Ezekiel is prophesying the breath of the spirit into the dead bones in the field that they would come to life. And so this is the spirit of God coming in and lifting up and giving life to those that are dead. And so in verse 3, it says, They saw tongues of fire and se- that separated and came to rest on each of them. And the tongues that are being used here as a metaphor is a really good metaphor to be used, and it's very appropriate because we know what's about to take place in the story. If you know anything about the day of Pentecost, it's you know, the day of tongues, so to speak. And so it's, one of the, it's a very appropriate metaphor that we would find there. So the fire here uh, is, represents the presence of God. And the presence of God is often represented by fire. You can see it um, in Exodus 3.2, where it says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the burning bush. And we all know the story of the burning bush with you know, God speaking to Moses through the burning bush, where God was represented by fire in that instance. And then <clears throat> there's also the... Uh, God's presence was also in the cloud over the tabernacle and was seen as fire within that cloud as well at night. Then going on into verse 4 of Acts 2, it says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So in this verse, it's a little bit unclear as to whether they were speaking languages of other people or that they were, or, or a spiritual language and by a miracle of God, the people heard it in their own language. But at the end of the day, what, what's happening is that they're speaking a language that wouldn't necessarily be known to them, and it's being understood by all the people that are out in the crowd. So it's a miraculous happening that's going on, that God is giving them the gift to either speak something in a spiritual tongue that the other people understood as their own language, or to be able to speak in the languages of the other people, and they would understand it even though the people speaking didn't know how to speak that language. So it doesn't give us exactly which one of those it is, but regardless, it's definitely a miracle that's going on here. And so in verses 5 through 11, it reads, Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in our native tongue? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? So there were Jews from 15 different specific places mentioned here that are, have come to Jerusalem 
uh, to celebrate these festivals. If you have the, that map, if you could put that up. There you go. So you can see those are all the different places that are mentioned all the way around Jerusalem. People are coming from all over the place and from every direction around. So you can imagine all the different languages that are being spoken by the different people from all the different regions. But they come from a long ways away and from every different region all the way around Jerusalem. And these are the people that are in the crowd that are hearing what's going on on the day of Pentecost. Thank you. So you'll notice that when the people understood the word spoken that it wasn't a sermon or a message that was directed to the people. The people heard, heard the, the voices that they were speaking, the, the apostles, and they were declaring the wonders of God. It was addressed to God. So it wasn't them giving a sermon to the people at that time. It was only them speaking the wonders of God to praise and give glory to God himself. And so there's a lot of Pentecostal churches that mistakenly believe that God speaks to the church through tongues. And that's not really what the Bible teaches. It's it's not a biblical view on things. If you look in 1 Corinthians 14.2, Paul writes, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to the people but to God. Indeed, no one understands, understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. And then going on, Paul continues and he says that one who speaks in tongues in the church should pray that they have somebody that will interpret those words, that they'll have an interpreter to understand what is being spoken. And, that they, and if there isn't somebody to interpret, then they shouldn't speak, that they should only speak those words themselves to themselves to God, that if you don't have an interpreter, you shouldn't speak in tongues in church. It just adds confusion to it, and God isn't a God of confusion. He's a God of order. And so in the Bible... Whenever the subject of tongues comes up, comes up it's, always, it's always speaking divine secrets or wonders to God and never to the people. It's never something that's directed to us. So God gives this gift of tongues to someone to be able to, to glorify God's wonders and to praise God. So it's a gift that we're given, if you have that gift, and to speak it to God. It's not something for the benefit of the people around, but a benefit to glorify God. And so the people heard, heard them declaring the wonders of God in their own languages, and they were amazed and perplexed. So I, I can only imagine how amazed the people would be. I mean, I've seen that surprised look you know, a lot of times in my life when I, you know, I all of a sudden start speaking fluent Spanish, and people look you know, kind of amazed, like, what's this white guy doing speaking Spanish like this? And it's not that uncommon here in Southern California that somebody speaks Spanish that isn't of a Spanish-language you know, country. However... When I was living in Guatemala and I was speaking to people that, in villages where they would probably very rarely in their lives see a white person in their community and much less one that spoke fluent Spanish or their language fluently, those people were really just like, where did this guy come from? Who is this guy? How, how is it that I'm understanding what he is saying? It's even to the point where you would see people and they would understand what you're saying, yet they wouldn't speak back to you. They'd speak to somebody else that speaks that language because they just they can't like, grasp the concept that you're actually speaking something they understand or that you would even understand them. So, and that's just you know, Spanish, one language, one person, and I learned this language. It wasn't something just miraculously happening. We're here, all the different people in the crowd from all those different regions you saw on the map are all in one place 
They're speaking different languages, and they all heard the wonders of God being praised in their own language, and they were just dumbfounded by the whole thing. It's, it's really easy to imagine kind of just how amazed those people would be. And so uh, the 12 people were kind of transformed into a multilingual evangelist mission that day. It's just pretty amazing, and that would have been an amazing miracle to see. So continuing in verse 12 and 13, it says, Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. So you know they're thinking, These people, they must have been drinking or something. I don't know how they're speaking these languages. Something's weird. They're, they must be drunk. And so they're being filled. Let's see, the crowd, the crowd is asking, you know, what does this mean? And others were mocking him, saying that they're drunk. And you'll notice that they had a question. The question was, what does this mean? And you know, we'll get back to that question in a minute. So you just want to keep that in mind. So they're being filled with the Holy Spirit is a fulfillment of the promises from Jesus from Luke twenty four forty nine, where it says, I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And now here, Peter addresses a crowd to give his first sermon. Uh, just as God has given me today to give my first message here on a Sunday, he so did the same with Peter on that day. So verse 14 and 15 says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and, added, and addresses a crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. So, you know, we can only assume that as them being the apostles, that, you know, at that hour of the morning, they hadn't drank enough to be drunk. And as the apostles, one would hope they're not drinking to the point of being drunk ever. That that really wasn't the lifestyle that they were leading. That, you know, they were following Christ, living with Christ. I'm pretty sure they weren't drunkards at, at that point in their lives. Uh, at least one would hope. It's not what we see in the Bible. Um... And so, back to the question. What does this mean? That's what they're asking. What does this mean? And so Peter does here what any good pastor should do. is that He gives a message that's going to answer their question. And the way he's going to answer the question, he does it the best way that's possible, is he refers to scripture to answer that question. And he answers it, you know, like I said, in the best possible way with, with scripture. He goes to the words of the prophet Joel. And so in verses 16 through 21... He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven, in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So then Peter explains that this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it was spoken in, in, for us, Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. And then in verses 22 through 24, it says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as yourselves know. 
This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of the wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So here, Peter's speaking about how God sent Jesus with miracles, wonders, and signs. And it's those miracles, wonders, and signs that were spoke about in prophecy that the Messiah would be identified by coming with miracles, wonders, and signs around him. And so this is a fulfillment <clears throat> a fulfillment of that prophecy and of that promise that, that we see. And so God allowed him to be handed over to them for a set purpose. So he's handed over for a set purpose. What was that purpose? Why, why did God allow him to be handed over? And the purpose was to be nailed to the cross, that his blood be spilled and to die as a perfect sacrifice. And then God raised him from the dead, fulfilling the prophecy of destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days from John 2.19. And then in verses 22, or sorry, 25 through 28, he says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy, Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. So here, Peter's quoting uh, David. He quotes David from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And it says, you know, David's faith will not be shaken because he has God at his side. That he knows that he has God with him, so nothing can happen that's going to shake him. As we go through this message, it's being made clear to us that, you know, Peter was really a man of the word. That he was a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus, and he knew the scriptures. You know, the Old Testament scriptures. Many pastors and teachers, they can quote scriptures, and especially some of the common ones like, you know, Psalm 23 or Romans Road or things like that. It's pretty common that a lot of people know those scriptures. But imagine what Peter's doing here. In this instance, you know, everything's happening all at once. And he's able to quote scripture and verses in that moment and apply them to what's happening in that same instant. Just in their obscure verses, they're not really common ones who are being used all the time. It's something that he just knew that the Holy Spirit was working in him drew those verses up and really was able to apply that to exactly what was going on in that instance. And, you know, clearly God is making himself seen in the events of that day. It's just, it's really amazing how, how that was happening and, and how it can happen with all of us that when you get the Holy Spirit working in you and directing you, how scripture will come to mind that you don't even think of when you're you know, giving testimony to somebody or witnessing to somebody, those words will just come into your heart and you speak the right words to the right person because it's not you really speaking them. It's the Holy Spirit directing you to speak to them. And so continuing from verse 29, Peter continues to explain. He says, David was a prophet. He died and was buried in his tomb here in Jerusalem, and he remains here to this day. Being a prophet, he knew that God would you know, place him place one of his descendants on his throne. There was something that he could foresee in the future as a prophet. God had spoke to him, said that one of his descendants would, would be that, that 
person on the throne for eternity. And he knows that that's the Christ or the Messiah. And David, David knows that. And that's why he has that confidence and that hope. And he explains that the Messiah was not left to the grave or death and that his body would never see decay. And so when David was speaking, he wasn't speaking about himself. He was speaking here of the resurrection as God raised Jesus from the dead. And this is a central message of Peter's sermon is, is the resurrection. And it's really the central message of the church today. It all also goes to the resurrection. That it's through that resurrection that we get our life. And without the resurrection, Christ would have not overcome death. That uh, We could never overcome death through Christ if it wasn't for that resurrection. So our message always kind of comes back to that resurrection, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that gives us eternal life. Peter says in verse 32, and we are all witnesses to the fact. So after Christ's resurrection, he was exalted the right hand of God, and he received the Holy Spirit from God as promised, and it was poured out on the people. And Peter explains to the crowd that the result of the Spirit being poured out is what's happening here, that they aren't drunk. They're, they're drunk with the Spirit, so to speak, that they've been filled with the Spirit, and it's that outpouring of the Spirit through them that they're experiencing. That's what's going on that's answering the question, of, you know, what is this? What is going on? What, are, what does this mean? And so that's really kind of what it does mean. And we know in, in Psalm 16, David is referring to the Christ and not himself because he states, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so David here says, the Lord, being God, the Father, says to my Lord, the Messiah, or Christ. So he's not referring to himself, but the Lord is referring to the Lord. So it's God talking to God, and not, not David there. And then Peter gets up, and now he really starts to go after the Jewish crowd. This is where, you know, it starts, the message starts to get a little ugly when you're on the receiving end of it. And just like all of us do when we feel conviction. So in verse 36, it says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The Jews in the crowd are some of the same Jews who plotted and fought to kill Jesus just two months earlier. Remember that we're not that far away from from the crucifixion. It was only 50 days after the Last Supper. So this is... You know, very recent times. And so in verse 37, he says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And so the term cut to the heart reflects both belief and regret. That at this point, they're realizing, you know, kind of what they've done and, and how they can't really change the past. And something that changed in them since the death of Christ. They're not the same people that they were. And it's possible that they themselves could have been witnesses of the crucifixion just two months earlier there in Jerusalem. And then subsequently they could also be direct witnesses to Christ back in the flesh here on earth after the resurrection. So they at that point would know, like, this was the Christ. This is the Messiah and we killed him. And they, the conviction that you can imagine on that, it's got to be just overwhelming. That, you know, that would be the reason that their current belief in Christ, that due to their belief, they now regret what they've done. Their belief brought on self-conviction and regret 
or repentance. And you can only imagine, you know, we're convicted of our sins when we get to know Christ. When we come to Christ and we realize all the things in our life that we've done wrong, we, we get that conviction and, you know, we feel just a pain for what we have done. But these people, they knew Christ. They knew him in person. They lived amongst him. You know, they, they saw him face to face. They fought and they plotted to kill Christ. That was, you know, that's what they were doing every day. They were looking for ways that they could convict and kill Christ. And at this point, that's a lot of conviction when you realize that you're the one responsible to go out and go after and crucify the Messiah. I, mean, that, I can't even imagine how much conviction that would be. It's bad enough the sins that we live with that those are some pretty heavy sins. Though all the sins are, you know, have the same penalty. And so the reality is that we're also guilty of Christ's death because if it was without our sin, there'd be no need for Christ to have been sacrificed. There's no need for him to go to the cross. And so if, if we weren't sinning and the people of that, that time weren't sinning, then Christ wouldn't have had to die. So just as much as they're convicted, we really should feel that convicted as well because it's our sins that really drove him to the cross. And the same thing that happens in all of us, you know, when we come to Christ, we do things that are sinful, but you know, we, before we come to Christ, we do things that are sinful, and we don't really regret them at the time. We're out living our life, and you don't think, you know, a second thought about all the sins that we commit. But as we learn and we study, you know, we can see you know, in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And we learn that, you know, as we become Christians, we understand that our sin, the payment for that sin is death. So somebody has to die, and... We're the ones that have committed it. That penalty falls on us. We're to die. And which is me, basically means, you know, eternal separation from God. And in other words, damnation to hell with eternal suffering. And I don't think that's a goal that any of us would ever seek after. That Nobody wants that. The good news comes for us in the second half of 623 of Romans. When it says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's where we, there's hope. That we know what the wages of sin is, it's death, but through Christ, that payment's been made, that we have hope, that we can have eternal life, that we're not destined to a life of eternal suffering. Continuing to verse 38. So now we now that the Jews are feeling convicted and they and having you know belief in Christ and they want to know what to do. You know, what can I do? I I feel convicted for what I've done. How can I get away from this pain of this conviction? What can I do to to be saved? And they don't have the assurance that we have from the book of Romans that the book of Romans hasn't been written yet. It's only two months after after Christ's death. So they don't get that assurance that we get quite as easily that we can read in Romans and know that the word of God tells us that we have the opportunity for salvation. So Peter instructs them clearly. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So we want to be really careful here not to be confused by what was said. Because the verse says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And what Peter's saying here is, is not, what he is not saying is that their sins are forgiven by baptism. Because your sins are not forgiven by baptism. It is that, Sin is forgiven by that which, rep, which is represented by baptism. So why do we get baptized? We, we aren't required to be baptized. It's not 
not a deal breaker for salvation. Can we, you know, can we go to heaven if we're not baptized? Of course. Like, baptism doesn't get us into or keep us out of heaven. It doesn't have anything to do specifically with that. But if we aren't getting baptized, it's by disobedience. That Christ calls us to get baptized. And like I said, if we don't, it's not a deal breaker for our salvation, but we are being disobedient to what God calls us to do. So again, why do we get baptized? First, we get baptized because God tells us to. That, that's a, the best reason of any, that if God's telling you to do something, you should do it, whether it's be baptized or follow whatever call he's given you. If you hear God talking to you, you should do whatever, that, whatever it is that he says. And then the second reason is that baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. It's a public expression of our faith that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that it's a repentance of our sins. That's why we get baptized, is to, to show the world that we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we believe in him. And so that's what Peter is saying here when he says, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It isn't that the baptism is doing it, it's what the baptism represents that is forgiving them of their sins. And again, this is what Peter instructed the Jews in the crowd to do. He said to you know, express publicly their belief and their repentance, to admit that what they did was wrong and, and to not want to do it again, to repent of those sins. And through that, they can have salvation. Then Peter assures them by telling them that they will receive the Holy Spirit that the promise of the Holy Spirit is for them. It wasn't just for the apostles there, but the promise of the Holy Spirit to come in and fill you is for all of us, including the, all those who are in the crowd and even us today, that we get that same promise of the Holy Spirit to come to us when we accept and believe in Jesus Christ, that that Spirit comes to dwell in us and live in us and to guide us and lead us. And if we just listen, then it helps us to follow God's law. So, who does the Lord call? Because it's, you know, the, it's for those that the Lord calls. And the Lord calls us. He calls all of us. Uh, the problem is that not everyone will answer that call that God has given. That there's this little problem that, you know, free will in there. So God wouldn't have that any should perish. You know, we are created because God wanted to share his love with us. He wanted to have us with him forever. That that was the goal, that we be with God for eternity. All of us. You know, we look around the world and there's lots of people that we see and we think, well, that person shouldn't be in heaven. We don't, you know, I don't like those people. Or God looks at us all and you know, he loves us all. Whether we're trying to live a, li- a righteous life or we're you know, living a complete life of debauchery and sin, God still loves us. He hates the sin that's in us, but he loves us and would have that none of us should perish. So again, the problem is free will, that many of us choose not to hear God's call. That he's there, he's calling for us to do things, and you know, many people choose death over life. They choose separation over fellowship, and they choose suffering over happiness. Then going on to verse 40, it says, With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I think he'd call that a successful message, that you give a message, and that day 3,000 people come to Christ. That's, 
I don't think you're going to see even a Billy Graham pulling in those numbers on a daily basis of true repentance and sin of 3,000 people coming to you. That's it's pretty amazing. And so the chapter finishes off speaking about fellowship of the believers. So in verses 42 through 47, it reads, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are, to be, who are being saved. So I believe this chapter finishes off speaking about fellowship because it's such an important part of our walk with Christ. That you know, if you believe that you don't need to go to church, then you're being disobedient to what Christ calls us to do. It says, you know, do not forsake the gathering of the brethren. God calls us to spend time together in fellowship. And fellowships, it's important. It's, it comes up in Scripture all the time, and there's a reason for it. It's because God wants us to spend time together, that we're an influence on each other as Christians spending time together. It's through this fellowship that we grow. You know, how are we able to get to know each other and support each other and, and know the sins that each of us is struggling with? When we, if we don't get to know each other, we don't know the problems that each of us are having. We don't know who needs prayer. We don't know what's going on in somebody's life. And it's only through that fellowship that we get to know those things, that we can really help each other, that we can live as a body together in Christ, which is God's plan for us here. That the church, you know, we each, each all have our, our different gifts. I'm teaching the youth about spiritual gifts right now, and it's important to understand that we don't all have the same spiritual gifts. We all have our different parts of the church that we do. And if we all work together, things function well. If we all try to do one thing, there's too many people trying to do one thing and nobody doing the other things that need to be done. And God has it set to where if we all just do what he's calling us to do, everything is done well. And we just need to be able to hear that call and follow it. So it's important in fellowship that when we know, you know, we share with somebody that a sin that we're struggling with, that we're having trouble, we're having temptations or whatever it may be, if we tell other Christians about that, then they can help to hold us accountable to those things. When we know that somebody's going to be asking us, you know, how are you doing with that? Have you been able to you know, avoid it? Are you able to avoid that struggle? They give us that support that we need to be able to you know, push those sins aside and not live in sin anymore. But through fellowship with Christians, we're able to live more righteous lives. And so it's through this fellowship we grow. We get to know each other. And support each other. We'll know who needs prayer, who's struggling, all those things. And this is like a recipe for a Christian. That, you know, devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's like those are the ingredients. You put them all together and there you have a good Christian. So, you know, we should stay in the word. We should gather together with other believers. And we should eat together. And we should pray. That's what God calls us to do. And these people were living godly lives that they supported each other emotionally spiritually 
and physically, that they looked out for each other's needs. It said that they shared what they had with those who had nothing. So they'd sell off what they had and put all the money together as a church, and if somebody had need, they were taken care of. And that's something that these days oftentimes has kind of been set aside, that people forget that the church was the one that was called to help the people, the widows, the orphans, and people with need in the community, that these days people fall upon the government to try and get all that help, that they you know, want the government to give you what you need. When the reality is, God has called us as a church to be the ones to do that, to be the ones guiding and helping people that are in need, and to you know, be examples to those people so that they can come to Christ rather than living lost and in sin. And it says that by living their lives, gathering to share the gospel in the temple and elsewhere, helping each other, having fellowship and praising God, they produced fruit. So by living that little recipe for a Christian, they were producing fruit. It said that God added to their numbers daily. God blessed the ministry that they had. And you'll note that it says that God added to their number. It doesn't say that they added to their number. It doesn't say that the church increased itself. It was that God added to their number. And so our job is to go out and and share the gospel, to plant those seeds, to go out in the community and share God's word with people, and to be the light in the world, to... You know, have people drawn towards that light to come out of the darkness. That's what our job is. It's not our job to save the people. It's through planting those seeds and going out and sharing with the people. Then the Holy Spirit takes over. It's, <clears throat> excuse me. It's, it falls upon God to, to care for the crop and to bring in that harvest. That isn't our job. That's all on God. And it's something we get lost on sometimes as Christians. That, you know, I need to go out and save souls. And it's really... It's, it's not us. If that's the viewpoint you have when you go to share the gospel that you're saving souls, you're going to be sadly disappointed because there's a lot of people that you share the word with and they're not responsive to it, that they refuse to hear the Holy Spirit. And it's not that they don't hear you. They heard what you said. What you said isn't going to give them salvation. It's just the key to get them to understand what they need to do. And it's the Holy Spirit working in them that's going to give them the salvation that they need. So we can lead people towards salvation, but it's up to God who does all the saving. Him him and him alone. And so it's through this fellowship that we're also discipled. And and how how we disciple others. So if we don't spend time with other Christians, how are we going to be able to grow in our Christianity, grow in the word? I mean, we can study the word, and if we read the Bible and study it ourselves, there's growth. But if we're not spending time with other Christians and discussing the word and understanding it and studying it together and hearing other people's questions and getting a a deeper understanding of it, our growth is really slow or it may even become stagnant. And so it's important in that fellowship that we are able to be discipled, that we have a teachable heart, that we can let people, you know, that are teaching on Sundays, teaching on Monday nights and Wednesdays and Thursdays and all the days that we have teaching going on, that you come and you have that teachable heart and that they're able to disciple you by by helping to share God's word. But it's not only through the days when we're teaching specifically, but just being together as Christians, we discuss the word. And through that discussion, we, we grow. We have deeper understanding. The spirit works in us, helping us to, to give the words about any particular scripture we're talking about that might help somebody else have a deeper understanding. So it's not only to disciple others, but also to be discipled oneself. 
So it's through this fellowship that we are discipled and how we disciple others. And it's stated in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. And so that's the final thing that Jesus instructs us before he left this earth. Was that we read in the Bible. I'm sure he spoke after that. But the last thing that we get of Christ's quote in the Bible to us is go and make disciples of all nations. And so that's what you know, Eric and Brenda and Megan, that's what they're doing over in Cambodia right now. They're sharing the gospel and going out and being witnesses. They're helping to make disciples of all nations, just as we're all called to do. We don't all have to go to Cambodia, but we all have our part, whether it be at work or with a friend or you know, in the community, in Mexico, wherever you may go, we're called to make disciples. We're, we should share that gospel message everywhere that we go. And so how can we fulfill this instruction from Christ if we don't have fellowship? So that fellowship is so important in our walk. And so on the day of Pentecost, which is also known as the day of first fruits in Numbers 28, 20, uh, 28 26, it says it is a, that it's a day to, of an offering of the first fruits. Uh, we, look to, we look at the message from Acts 2, and it's, it's very appropriate that the day of Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Uh, you know, Peter began the church that day with that sermon when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were all given that gift of the Holy Spirit that day. God began the church through Peter that day and as we read scripture we can see that you know, the 3,000 people were added to the church that day. It's you know, quite a growth for one day. Um, when you look at percentages, that's got to be you know, several hundred percent growth on that day at, at the very least. And then those 3,000 and the apostles, they were the first fruits of the church. So they were that, they offered themselves up as a living sacrifice to the Lord that day. That they are that first fruits of the harvest. Just as in the Old Testament you had the Feast of the Harvest and the Feast of Weeks where they would give an offering of those first fruits. We are that, you know, they at that time, they were those first fruits of the church, offering themselves up to dedicate themselves to Christ, to die to themselves and be that living sacrifice here on earth. And so we should be offering ourselves up as a living sacrifice to the Lord as well. You know, we can do, do that by honoring him in all things that we do, no matter what that is. That when we're tired or we're stressed you know, at work and we have things we've got to do that we just don't feel like doing, you know, we, we have the wrong attitude about it. We're just like, yeah, fine, I'll do it. I have to do it. I'll go and do it. But when we realize that we are to glorify God in all things that we do, and we realize that and take that to heart, it's through Christ and the Holy Spirit living in us and guiding us that we're able to do it with the right attitude. That all things we have to do, whether it's scrubbing a toilet or you know, getting a big check in the mail from the government you know, for IRS saying, here's some of your money back. Whatever it may be, that we have the right heart about it because we know that we're, whatever we do, we're doing it to glorify God. And if we look at everything that we do in our lives as a way to glorify God then it takes those stresses away. It, it helps us to be able to do our jobs without feeling the stresses of the world around it that, that cloud what our vision should be, which is to keep focused on, on Christ. And so when we remember that, we can die to ourselves and we can live for Christ as true living sacrifices. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and that you're able to to give it to us so we're able to read it and share it and understand it and get deeper meaning for our daily lives through it. I just thank you for this opportunity to be able to serve you. I just ask you
be with us as we you know, talk about your communion and the sacrifice you've given for us. In Jesus' name, amen.